0: Hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. Alright, welcome back to the next episode of the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Eddie Ward and Professor Jennifer Erickson. Uh, today we're going to be talking about something that's uh, you know really dominated not only the news, but our world recently, which is the situation in Ukraine. Uh, so joining us to discuss this is uh, Professor Jennifer Erickson. Uh, she's in the Political Science Department and International Studies Program at Boston College, which she joined in 2010. Research interests include international security and arms control, conventional and nuclear weapons, and the laws and norms of war. Uh, Professor Erickson, thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Sure. Uh, Well, before we get started, uh, I guess if you just want to talk about what you teach, what you study, like anything more that's not just what's online that you would want folks to know before we we get into the topic.
1: Well, this is a topic that really intersects with my research in, in really big and important ways. So one project that I've done that I've worked on that I have a book out about is about the conventional arms trade and its intersection with conflict and human rights violations. So as you can imagine, this is a big topic for me right now. I also research sanctions and arms embargoes, which has also been a big tool of the international community in this conflict. And then finally, I have a new book project on emerging technologies and the laws and norms of war and how they evolve in response to those technologies. So this is also an interesting test case, particularly for drones and other kinds of new technologies, cyber um, as well. So um, at Boston College, I teach courses on global governance, globalization and national security, the future of war, and International relations
0: theory. Very good. Um, so, I guess at a, at a high level, um, what's going on in Ukraine? I mean, I know this is just a massive conflict. It's a massive international situation with just huge, uh, just huge ramifications, uh, and there's just so much to talk about. But at a high level, um, in terms of international security, in terms of uh, you know international law. Uh, and in terms of, you know, really what you study and, and the way you approach this conflict, what 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 do you see here? What's what's going on?
1: Well, that's a massive question, too. So right. I'm going to break it down into a couple of parts for you. First, just an overview for your listeners. On the 24th of February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine, right, um, after recognizing two self-declared regions in Donbass um, in a few days earlier and then over the several months prior amassing troops at its borders. Um, In some respects, this might be considered sort of an ongoing conflict since 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and southern Ukraine and recognized and started backing some of the Donbass separatist groups. And this all came in response to the ouster of pro-Russian president Viktor Yanukovych um, that same year. This most recent phase of the conflict, if we want to think about it sort of as a separate conflict, is the largest conflict in Europe since World War II. Um, and it's already produced about 4 million refugees. So this is already, in just wow. a few weeks of war, a really big um, event um, in international politics. There's a lot of debate, though, about what's going on here and really what is what is going on in Ukraine, right? Um, in many ways, there's an agreement that Russia's war is about sort of pushing back um, against um, Ukraine's kind of drift towards Western institutions. Um, and um, adopting pro-Western policies pro-Western or pro-democratic domestic institutions. And the big debate is really about why is Russia reacting this way? In particular, why is there a military invasion of a country for doing this, right? This is sort of a disproportionate response in many ways, a very illegal response. And it's not clear that it's a savvy use of military power for Russia either. So all the things we sort of expect to explain conflict don't really add up here. So this leaves people sort of mired in debate about what's actually going on. Um, For some, this is a war that's Russia's response essentially to the eastward expansion of NATO that's been going on since the end of the Cold War, and sees it as a military threat. So it's really a military response to a military re- threat that's coming close to its borders. Um, Post-World War II, the then Soviet Union consciously sought to create the sort of post, um, create a pro-Soviet puppet states in Eastern Europe to create a buffer, essentially, between it and the West. It had been invaded by Germany a couple of times in the 20th century. It, was, it just saw itself as an insecure position. And so this is really a matter of security. Um, and not just military security, but also political security. So um, some see similar dynamics essentially at play today. There's some reason to be skeptical for that, I think. Um, NATO's eastward expansion has been happening for a long time without military responses from Russia. And Ukraine's membership in NATO has never been guaranteed and is certainly really not like actively on the table. In fact, the chances of it are not very credible at all. So I it just means,
0: follow up on that. Yeah. As I understand, in 2008, uh, the Bush administration was really pounding the table for a membership action plan uh, for Ukraine into. Uh, NATO, which obviously never ended up materializing, but what, you know, a lot of folks have sort of talked about that. I'm not sure everyone understands the process for getting into NATO, but what's the background on Ukraine and, and NATO?
1: Well, it's a long process to get into NATO. You have to make a lot of reforms to your military, to your domestic institutions. It's a big deal. But also all of the NATO members have to agree to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's been a big political hurdle as well. So first of all, nothing happened in 2008 when the Bush administration was trying to do it. If that was really a key thing, you would expect maybe Russia to react militarily then, Mm -hmm. not now when the... You know, the membership prospects are even more distant. There's been a lot of political disunity in NATO. Um, France has really expressed its wish to stop NATO expansion and not to sort of increase the membership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the processes that Ukraine would have to undergo are long processes that new members take a long time to sort of engage in those reforms. And then getting all those political actors on board in NATO isn't another process entirely that seems really, really stalled at this point in time.
2: I'm interested about... Um What you what your thoughts are about the U.S. strategically declassifying information about Russia's Russia's actions prior to this invasion. Um, I I think I I speak for a lot of people when saying I was surprised, you know, listening to NPR in the morning and uh, and the president or secretary of state would come out and say Russia is preparing to invade Ukraine. And and why do you think they did that?
1: So this is an unorthodox approach, right? You say you were surprised. I think a lot of people were really surprised. But in retrospect, it really seems like an extremely strategic, savvy, and successful approach, um, especially by the United States and its intelligence communities. Um, It took a lot of political insight. It took a lot of bureaucratic finesse and diplomatic skill to pull this off. But there's still a question about why do this. Um, Many point to the CIA director, Bill Burns, as being a key actor behind this strategy, and one who has a lot of insights into to Russia and into Putin in particular, and so part of this might be that he speaks Russian. He's done a couple of tours of duty in Moscow, both under Yeltsin and under an early Putin um, presidency. So he's got some insight into what's going on here, um, and I think the approach. Uh, I think this approach reflects three changes that he and other members of the intelligence community in the Biden administration have really understood and responded to. So first, I think it reflects the changed nature of warfare and an information-rich environment. There's a lot of open source information out there, and there's just a lot of information. It's hard for people to sort through and know what's going on, know what's accurate, what's not accurate, and what to do with all that information. So this is a way of packaging it and showing people, here's what's really going on. Um, Second, I think it has to do with knowing the nature of the adversary, understanding Putin's Russia, and especially his mastery of misinformation campaigns. Um, and that this needed to be something that we needed to figure out how to push back against in combat. Mm-hmm. And third and finally, it's really about the nature of NATO and the sort of political disputes kind of going on within the alliance, figuring out how to bring skeptical NATO members or at least... Um, reluctant NATO members on board, and using this as a diplomatic tool to sort of bring the alliance together.
0: Do you think? And you know, obviously, President Biden is a, is a an elder statesman, as it were. He was certainly <laughs> in the room in you know 2014 when uh, you know Russia sent the little green men into Crimea. I mean, he had a obviously, if, uh, a first first-hand uh, look at what happened then. And obviously, you know, then Obama was calling the shots. Um, do you think that, you know, sort of what happened and then, and, you know, Russia using disinformation, you know, sort of sending in troops without, you know, uh, Russian colors on the uniform, you know, basically exploiting what you might call asymmetric warfare. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the... The, the the West, NATO, you know, or I guess to the extent Biden's calling the shots on this. Yeah. How did those prior experiences dealing with Putin and some of these strategies perhaps color this approach to, to, to this latest transgression and this atrocity?
1: Well, I can only sort of imagine I don't yeah. have sort of deep insights sure. into to Biden's um, own personality. Um, but I have to imagine that if you've been in the room for these kinds of decisions and watch these events unfold in the past, as you suggest, that this has been a learning experience for those those leaders who've dealt with Putin and sort of understood over time kind of mm-hmm. what he's – what he's capable of doing and what he's willing to do both with information and with his military. So I mm-hmm. think this is kind of two-pronged, right? It's not just about information and intelligence. It's also about how far is he willing to go to sort of push his agenda. And it's pretty far, and we've seen that already.
0: Can you just talk a little bit about how uh, the West has gone about responding to Putin and responding to the invasion given the fact, you know, Russia is, a, of course, a nuclear-armed power. Putin has not hesitated to, uh, to emphasize that. Um, You know, throughout media, there's, of course, this pretty stiff press conference where he, like, instructs his his, his lieutenants there uh, with respect to to nuclear preparations. How how do you respond to, to something like that? And how has the West responded through sanctions and otherwise?
1: So I think the short answer is very carefully, right? Um, There's been an effort by the West to say, engage with diplomatic tools, engage with sanctions, but come short of offering direct sort of military boots on the ground in Ukraine. And there's a reason for that. You don't want two nuclear armed powers to come sort of face to face in a military capacity. So we start by talking maybe about economic sanctions from the West and from the international community more broadly. Um, We can think about these as growing sort of in depth and in breadth as the sort of conflict in the... Lead up to the conflict have progressed. Um, In the lead up to the conflict, they were obviously meant to deter Russian invasion in the first place. So given sort of growing sanctions that it was meant to say, here, Russia is a signal of what's to come. Don't do it or it's just going to hurt more. Um, and now during the conflict they are intended to be a punishment on Russia for its violations of international law um, but also to compel it to change its behavior Russia if you keep doing this this will just get more costly this will hurt your economy you want to stop right um, In theory the deterrence phase of sanctions is really hard to carry out. Um, it's hard to for sanctions on their own to really, raise the cost to a leader of engaging in an action they really want to do and getting them to stop or like not start it in the first place, right? Um, But they are at least easier than the compellence phase that we're now in. So it's even harder to convince Putin who's put boots on the ground, he's invested politically, he's invested militarily, and to just use sanctions to say this is costly for you, you should go home is a really hard, um, it's hard to sell that. the initial complication is that Russia itself, apart from its energy sectors, its rare minerals, is not deeply integrated into the global economy. It's not a big player, um, and it's not necessarily that connected to Western states. So the kinds of sanctions they might offer, financial sanctions, trade sanctions, import-export sanctions, and so on, they might have limited effects, especially since Russia has been preparing its financial sector for this for a while. Um, and so...
0: When you say preparing their financial sector, what what does that look like?
1: So they've been knowing that there's a possibility for sanctions to hit and to hit hard Mm -hmm. if the West can get it together. And I think there was some skepticism that the West would go as hard as it's already gone on sanctions. Um, But prepare alternate routes. So if you have to think about where are you keeping your money? Are you using Western banks? What kind of deposits are you using? um, How does your... financial system work, is it reliant on Western financial institutions, then you might try to say shift towards China or build in sort of extra reserves or think about how you can kind of give yourself a buffer essentially for when those sanctions hit. So it can also prepare um, for these things to hit, which means they might not hit hard for a long time. So if you're playing the sanctions game, you also have to be willing to sit that out and let them build up costs over time. And that means you need to, that political unity in the Western alliance and in international institutions to last for a long time, too, and potentially accrue costs to what we call the senders of the sanctions, those who are imposing the sanctions. And they have to be willing to keep that up for a while in order to, for sanctions to have maybe some chance of being successful. But the chances for success here seem, you know, not Not on the balance of favoring sanctions over the long term.
2: Now, on the other side of sanctions, um, Western countries have tried to help Ukraine Mm -hmm. by offering economic um, and even some military support in terms of sending uh, equipment. Germany broke decades long policy to actually send military equipment. Is there a chance that this sort of support will inflame tensions more with Russia? What is the cost benefit in terms of helping Ukraine without making it worse with uh, our, our conflict with the nuclear power?
1: So I think we have some questions coming up too about the the weapons transfers and fighter jets. So I don't know if you want me to fold that in here or wait. Um, let me let me just kind of talk about arms transfers and military assistance more generally right now. Sure. Um, this is sort of the other side of the response, right? Punish Russia but help Ukraine. Um, and on that, the U.S. has authorized uh, several. You know, millions, billions of dollars worth of spending at this point, um, especially for equipment orders um, and so on with cybersecurity funds, defense assistance, humanitarian assistance and so on. I think what the United States has tried to do, um, it is fine for the United States if it wants to provide arms exports. It can do that. It's it's entirely fine under international law for it to do it. It's fine even under domestic law for the U.S. to do that. So that's not really the issue. I think it's more about how do you... the arms exports? How does Putin perceive the arms exports? So the question you're asking is really more about, does exporting military assistance to Ukraine put the U.S. in a position of appearing to be directly participating in the conflict? Technically, no, it's not been the case with arms exports that this has happened. But the U.S. has also made a couple of explicit moves to try to distance itself from those kinds of accusations. So one, it's paid attention to Supplying things that are more seen as defensive rather than offensive equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so anti-air You system, say
0: seen. Seen by whom?
1: Seen by Putin and the okay. Russians especially. So less so about the international community and more so about what does Putin perceive here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the focus on sending defensive equipment rather than offensive such as anti-armor systems, anti-air systems, defensive weaponry, essentially, Mm -hmm. and sending small arms and white weapons rather than major conventional weapons. So the U.S. has sort of drawn its own line in the sand and Mm -hmm. has made a big point of pointing out that this is what it's doing, but it's not doing this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think whether this matters or not, Putin's going to see what he's going to see. He's going to spin what he wants to spin. But Mm -hmm. I think this is part of sort of the U.S. strategy of saying, look, we're keeping we're keeping a distance from this conflict. So
0: when you talk about, and I, and I do want to, I guess, jump to this this, this fighter jet mm. issue and we'll, and we'll come back on some of these other um, topics. So you, you talk about, you know, defensive weapons. Everybody's familiar. I know there's been, Uh, And a lot of papers sort of these uh, profiles of how a javelin missile works and how a stinger missile, you know, Mm -hmm. things that people weren't familiar with. And of course you have, you know, those weapons, which are generally seen as defensive, what you're defending yourself from a, from a tank, from a, uh, attack helicopter, et cetera. Um, and then you have a lot of calls for, for heavier weapons Mm -hmm. and then you also have, you know, fighter jets and there's a number of distinctions and sort of semantics that exist that I'm sure not many people are familiar with. And you just sort of drew on one of the, uh, one of these distinctions between defensive weapons and sort of heavier weapons. W- what kinds of weapons are we talking about there? Obviously, Ukraine has been calling for, I mean, they've called for a no-fly. They've called for a lot of things. But oh. what are the heavier weapons? Um, I guess there's a two-part question. What are some of those heavier weapons that, that could risk crossing one of Putin's red lines? And then could you just speak about this issue of, of, of the fighter jets? Of course, Poland was willing to, to send uh, MiGs to Ukraine that mm. Ukrainian pilots were familiar with. The, the U.S. pushed back on that. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about some of those distinctions?
1: So I want to be clear that these aren't Putin's red lines. Lines, right? Right. We don't have red lines from Putin on what constitutes an okay arms sale versus not. Mm-hmm. The, the Biden administration is trying to create this red line, but we're not really sure yeah. that Putin's going to buy it, right? It's it's fine, as I said, under domestic and international law to engage in these arms sales, um, but whether Putin actually says this is political distance, this is military distance, I accept that um, is really on on the side of Putin to decide what he thinks for himself, right? Um, and so. Primarily the debate has been about fighter jets, Um, and you want fighter jets that Ukrainian pilots don't need special new training to undergo. They want to be able to basically get into the jet and fly. So you're speaking Uh, about
0: the the MiGs as opposed to like an F-16 platform? Right. So
1: Ukrainian pilots would be better trained and sort of… Former Soviet equipment, that's what they would be familiar with. So you want platforms that they're sort of familiar with uh-huh. so they don't have to go undergo a lot of training in order to be able to use um, the fighter jets right away. Um, the U.S. did greenlight NATO allies to send... Um, heavy equipment and fighter jets to Ukraine, should they want to, in early March. The debate about the Polish MiG fighters especially has been about, in some ways, how they would get there and how the U.S. would be perceived in participating in that. And in particular, I think the concern, the word on the street anyway, is that this is something about the airspace that you would have to use to get the fighter jets to and from Ukraine, from Poland, from Germany, and so on. Mm-hmm. And if you end up fly- flying those jets through contested airspace, mm-hmm. then it appears as though there's a more direct role in the conflict for NATO. And NATO really, really, really wants to avoid that.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the, the logistics of doing that? Because I'm not sure many people understand. I think you, you, know, you, you can think of like flying them from, do you fly them from Poland to Ukraine, to Ukrainian? Because I'm sure there's international law and sort of other technicalities that uh, the, the, the Pentagon and other NATO allies have, have sort of looked at here. It seems like a pretty technical a technical topic. What 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 specifically is the is the is, is is where you run into trouble when you're trying to do something like that. I
1: might not be the right technical sure. person to answer that question. So I think a lot of this has to do with flying them from Germany. My understanding mm-hmm. of this was anyway, and I'm I like I don't have any deep insights sure. from the administration. I've just been reading online yeah. about what this is and there was a lot of sort of debate about what was actually going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a messy timeline in terms of Poland saying they would do this, and the U.S. saying, oh, but we haven't actually approved that, and then sort of backing off of the deal. Um, My understanding was that Poland was going to get the jets somehow to Germany, and the jets were going to go from Germany— into ukraine Mm -hmm. but some of that might have involved flying through airspace in ukraine that's contested between russia and ukraine and in doing that if you're flying through airspace that russia considers russian airspace Mm. you're now in kind of their territory and that looks really aggressive um, for an alliance that doesn't want to look like it's being directly aggressive to Russia.
0: Gotcha. Um, so spe- you, you spoke of you know, contested airspaces, you know, all, all sorts of in terms of territory and mm. battle lines, and you see these maps every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- where does the war stand uh, at this point in time?
1: So how is the war going? right? Doozy have a question? If we compare expectations from before the conflict started, how both Russia thought this was going to go and how everybody else thought this was going to go. From the Russian perspective, this is going really badly. Um, This is not what Russia expected at all. It expected a quick victory. Its forces have not performed as it or others would have anticipated. And I think it's been really surprised by Ukraine's ability to push back um, and the strong condemnation, too, that it's gotten from the international community. From Ukraine's perspective, then, the war is going pretty well. This has gone surprisingly um, well, I think. Um, To some extent, I don't think this should surprise us. Being on the defensive is inherently... um, Having the advantage in conflict going on the offensive is much harder. Russia's on the offensive. It should expect this to be harder. On the other hand, because of the massive asymmetric power differences between these two sides, I think everyone, Russian leaders, Western leaders, expected to see a much more effective use of offensive forces by Russia and has been really surprised at how ineffective it's been and the massive casualties it's taking. Um, we've been surprised too, not to see a big cyber conflict kind of breaking out here. We've been surprised not to see more sort of dominance of airspace, um, by Russia. So there's a lot that everybody sort of thought was, was a given going in that just hasn't, um, unfolded. I think how long Ukraine can actually hold out, um, it continues to be the question, right? It's shown strong resistance. Um, it's outperformed expectations, um, but it's a much weaker power. It's getting smaller equipment. It's, it's not, it might have a hard time decisively winning, decisively pushing Russia out. Um, but it's going to continue to push. And this is because it's a matter of survival for Ukraine um, and because it's getting at least supplies of assistance to allow it um, to keep going. Um, So it leaves us, I think, likely in a place where we have a protracted conflict that's really playing out for a longer time period, because no side is decisively winning here. Um, That said, Russia's now appointed um, a military commander for the war. It hadn't had that before, and now it has. It's sort of concentrating its forces in the east, and there's expectations that it could start to go better for Russia, and if nothing else, Russia will start to be much more brutal um, in its attacks than it already has been.
2: Well, going off that brutality question, as Russia has regrouped in the east and left um, Kiev suburbs such Mm -hmm. as Bukha, we've seen horrifying images come out. And and I'm wondering if if what Russia has done has constituted a war crime under international law.
1: Well, you're law students, right? So you know that there has to be a process of investigation before anybody can sort of formally declare that to be a war crime. I don't know if your listeners would be familiar with war crimes. Is that something Uh, you...
0: Is somewhat. We, we, we do have a, a number of international law programs, but mm-hmm. I think for the most part, I mean, these are things that people are primarily hearing about through the news, mm-hmm. which don't always explain a lot of those distinctions. Sure.
1: So let me just say briefly what war crimes are and then kind of where I sure. think we stand on this question of has Russia committed war crimes. So war crimes can include especially breaches of the Geneva Conventions, of which Russia is a signatory, um, and that can include torture, rape, Um, willful killing, intentionally attacking civilians and other non-military objects um, like hospitals. Um, It can include extensive destruction of property beyond what's justified by military necessity and much more. Now, the International Criminal Court is now investigating Russia for war crimes. Russia is not a member of the International Criminal Court. Ukraine has signed the Rome Statute but didn't ratify it. So it's in this sort of um, dubious um, kind of territory. But a lot of... um, Members of the UN have been pressuring um, the ICC to investigate, so the ICC is actually investigating Um, Although the evidence is still coming in, NGOs like Human Rights Watch have already been documenting specific instances of war crimes committed by Russian troops in occupied areas. Um, So targeting of hospitals also and other civilian buildings and sort of the bombardments, it would also be considered a war crime. And so the evidence does seem to be that this is happening um, and happening quite in in a quite widespread way. And so it seems likely that, yes, Russia has committed war crimes, but also unlikely that Putin or leaders in Russia would ever actually be prosecuted for them.
0: Right. Um, so you spoke a little bit about how you know, everybody, and I think every, everyone's a good mm-hmm. term, media analyst, what, you know, sort of everyone expected uh, you know, something of a, of a route in this conflict. And mm-hmm. obviously here we are uh a significant amount of time later and ukraine is still standing in some ways has, mm-hmm. has pushed back the russians has russia's military been exposed mm-hmm. i think you know everyone would acknowledge that for the longest time russia's military through pop culture through really any lens you want to look at mm-hmm. is seen as this leviathan you know just this 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 red army of mm-hmm. of old and you look at the way this this has gone and it seems like it's put a dent in that image like what's going on there it's pretty surprising.
1: Well, I think a lot of that's the legacy of the Cold War. We haven't mm-hmm. really seen Russia actively fight a full-on conflict, mm-hmm. uh, maybe since Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so th- and it didn't go well in Afghanistan. It had to withdraw from Afghanistan. So in some ways, those kind of public images of a, an army, a military and its strength are hard to shake over time. Um, but certainly it's clear Russia itself has overestimated its capabilities here. So it wasn't just kind of these images in media. Russia itself, I think, expected a lot more um, from its military. And now it's demonstrating these shortcomings on the world stage for everybody to really see. Um, This is a war that's taking place in a much more public, uh, observable format. We have a country that's much more wired with the Internet. People have smartphones, they use social media. And so it's not just that Russia is falling short of expectations, but that that's on display for the public to see um, really around the world. Um, And and so I think it's possible that this could change perceptions of Russia. um, But it's hard to know that at this point in time, because we're really still, let's remember, pretty early on in the conflict, this could last for a long time, Russia's fortunes could turn and that could really turn our perceptions of what that military can and can't do um, going forward as well.
0: Okay, um, so speaking of you know how things are going, and you know you, you know you just mentioned that the, the this could be a long haul here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what does Russia's endgame look like from what you're reading, and you know from from the way people are looking at this? Like what what, what does it seem like the you know Putin's endgame might be, and what's the off ramp? Off ramp is this word that's been used a lot. Like we have to offer Putin an off ramp, you know, save face, etc. I mean, mm-hmm. what 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 kind of off ramps and, and paths ahead are possible here?
1: So this is an issue of some dispute, particularly depending on how you diagnose the reasons for the invasion in the first place, right? If you think the invasion was all about NATO enlargement, saying, okay, let's stop NATO enlargement, perhaps that could be enough. Getting Mm -hmm. Ukraine to um, offer some kind of neutrality, maybe that's enough. If you think the invasion is really about Putin's idea of recreating a Russian empire, Uniting the Russian peoples as he sees it under a common Russian identity that, in, from his perspective, includes Ukraine, just saying we won't enlarge NATO might not be enough to satisfy him, right? And what his goals are might be shifting depending on how his military performs and kind of repackaging what he wants to do and what his expectations are might also be shifting. So it's all of this is some guesswork, right? We need to understand kind of what are Russia's goals and we have disputes about what those might be. Um, And understanding kind of Putin's psychology and all of this is something that nobody really has great insights into. So all of this is a little bit of... Um, guesswork. It seems clear that Putin is going to want concrete concessions from Ukraine in order to withdraw completely. Um, but whether those actually create a lasting solution, I think, is really up for grabs. It's hard to know um, whether an agreement about neutrality would be enough um, and whether it would be something that Russia would respect over time. And um, You also need to get Ukraine itself to see something that's politically feasible for it. So it's not just about saying, okay, what's okay with the West and what's okay with Russia? This is also Ukraine's own territory, its sovereignty, its political system, and it has to be okay with whatever the final kind of Um, agreement might be.
0: So you're saying there that uh, ultimately it's up to Ukraine and sort of Ukraine alone what terms it comes to here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's
1: Ukraine, it's Zelensky and Putin essentially at the negotiating table or not actually at the table, but um, it's an agreement between those two sides with the the West and NATO sort of hovering in the Mm -hmm. background, but they're not actually sort of signing an agreement and parties to this agreement. Um, It's also to me unclear of whether time is on Russia's side, if it's got the military equipment and troops to sort of last this out for a long time and kind of make this increasingly painful for Ukraine and extract more concessions. Um, but if continue, Ukraine can continue to wear Russia down and perform sort of above those expectations, it's going to be less willing to make some big concessions for its territory, its constitution, its political sovereignty, and so on. Um, so it's both kind of hard to know what each side is going to be willing to agree to do. And to get some kind of agreement, having sort of more clarity on kind of where they stand militarily might be necessary.
2: Yeah, only time will tell. Yeah. Um, it, it it's no secret that Putin is not a fan of either NATO or the European Union. That's right. And it seems over the last two decades, he's done whatever he can to try and um, uh, sow distaste among the members of each of those organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in practically two months, it seems he's rallied the world around both the EU and NATO. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, how how has the war backfired on him and strengthened both of those organizations?
1: So I want to start by saying the world has rallied mostly, right? We have some big players who are not backing you know, Ukraine in this conflict. We have China that's sort of firmly put its feet down on the side of Russia. We have India that's making a big point to maintain neutrality right now. And so there's some big players that haven't, haven't rallied in this rally that's otherwise been pretty impressive, I think. Um, again, we're still in the early days of this. And I think in some ways this has been shown a surprisingly strong both nato and european union um just given kind of political debates that these organizations have had in the last few years um but i also think sustaining that kind of political support over time when sanctions start to take their toll on those that are imposing the sanctions can also make that politically more difficult um over time so i think Yes, this has in some ways shown a stronger NATO. We've seen NATO members now say we're much more willing to spend the money in our defense budget to amp up our defenses. Um, we we have the EU, which has historically been a much less effective security actor, also try to make more progress on security. How that goes, it will take time to really figure that out. Um, but at the same time, I think... NATO allies have learned that political change in the U.S. can mean change for the NATO alliance. So while things look like they're pretty solid right now, another election could send things in a different direction. So I think those NATO allies are going to continue to be skeptical of the United States, which has priorities other than European security kind of in its security portfolio and isn't necessarily going to be deeply invested in in NATO over time.
2: So as many uh, European NATO members increase their defense spending and, as you say, are more willing to Mm -hmm. to spend on their own defense, um, does that sort of weaken the U.S.'s... um, Foreign, let me re-ask that. Um, it, is the United States in less of a position of being needed in Europe as it was um, at, from the end of World War II to the end of the Cold War?
1: Yeah, this is the perennial debate for NATO and the European Union and the relationship between those two organizations. At some ways, the U.S. has sought to keep the EU a little bit weaker on security issues because it wants to keep NATO the kind of dominant military organization in Europe. At the same time, the U.S. has been dissatisfied with NATO member spending. Um, on their defense budgets and has been sort of unhappy that they haven't pulled more weight in the alliance. So this this kind of delicate balance to strike between having the U.S. feel needed and take an active role, but also trying to increase sort of the the, uh, alliance burdens that the other NATO members share.
0: Just quickly, going off of that before we jump on a couple of these other questions, um, when you talk about the U.S. being dissatisfied with other nations pulling the weight, obviously that was a a main uh, a a common refrain of the Trump administration. Is that um, when you say the the U.S., is that other administrations have felt that way too, or where do you, um, where does that come from?
1: I think this has been a, a, a very, I mean, let me start over. This was very clearly a policy priority of the Trump administration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it has been a longer term, sort of more subtle concern from the United States and other administrations that the Allies should pull more weight in terms of military spending. Germany, especially, has spent a lot less um, than its sort of required NATO allotments. That has a lot to do with German politics and its understanding of the role of military and its foreign policy. That's a tricky issue for Germany. And this event here has really pushed Germany to kind of take steps forward with that that would have otherwise been really hard for Germany politically to pull off.
0: Gotcha. Uh, is, this, is this a second Cold War? And if it's not that, what is this? Like there's all sorts of different... I mean, you see people use this... Label and social media and other places, mm-hmm. like what you, you know, talking about comparisons and, and and sort of contrasting this era to previous wars, and you, you, there's a lot of there's a lot of that that goes on, um, you know, online in the media mm-hmm. and magazines and you know and, and in academic circles and you know and I, I can imagine in some ways it's it's hard to say no one has a crystal ball, but what mm-hmm. w- what is this era that that we're living in? How how would you how would you sort of frame it?
1: So experts have been talking about a return to great power competition Mm -hmm. for several years now. So this is not a kind of new conversation in the international relations community. Um, We've been talking about this. A a renewed Cold War has been the language some have used. And this could certainly be part of that. Um, But it also seems like very different dynamics between the U.S. and Russia specifically now than in the past. Um, In the past, it was really the Soviet Union as the main threat. For the united states um, and now the united states is really much more invested in balancing against its true rising competitor which is china and so well as before we had russia as the main competitor here russia's declining um it's not the main competitor The U.S. has really focused its attentions on China and China's military. And so while this does have sort of echoes of the early Cold War, um, and really brings to mind for me in 1947 President Truman's um, declaration that the United States would provide political, economic and military assistance to all democratic states that were under threat. Um, from authoritarian forces, particularly the Soviet Union. This has that ring to it, but that U.S.-Russia relationship is just so different. Um, The U.S. sort of security, sort of global security interests are quite different um, than they were before. And so, yes, there's a tense relationship with two nuclear-armed states. Seeking to avoid direct confrontation, but the stakes for the U.S. in this conflict may be overshadowed by more serious kind of pending competition with China than really a renewed Cold War with Russia.
0: So speaking to the nuclear question, this nuclear question, we we spoke about uh, Putin's saber rattling. I saw Mm -hmm. just yesterday an article you know, concerning China, you know, sort of building up their nuclear capability and, you know, this idea of the return to great power conflict. And, you know, obviously the the nuclear threat is one of sort of the defining memories of of the 20th century, you know, this fear of of nuclear warfare, which, you know, through through treaties and through, you know, the end of the Cold War, you know, sort of a threat that that diminished, obviously, terrorism. You know, it was became more of a threat over the last 20 years. But now it seems like the, you know, nuclear buildup, the threat of nuclear warfare, it's not, you know, entirely... Out of the question anymore, as it, as it as it sort of came to came to feel. Um, so, what is this conflict done in terms of you know uh, you know sort of nuclear disarmament, uh, the UN treaty on prohibition of nuclear weapons? You know, in terms of when uh, countries are willing to use nuclear weapons, like what is this done in terms of the the nuclear question?
1: So what are the effects of this for the sort of global nuclear politics, essentially? I think there's a lot going on here. Um, First of all, I think these questions for nonproliferation are going to be tricky. If it turns out that Russia actually would use a nuclear weapon, I think lots more countries are going to want a nuclear weapon just for their own security. Um, That said, I think over time, not even including this conflict, but just kind of over time, the past 10, 15 years, there's been a growing divide in international politics over nuclear weapons. There's one side, the non-nuclear weapon states, that say, these are bad for international security. We don't want them. We want to outlaw them. We don't think that the great powers, the nuclear weapon states, have made sufficient progress on their disarmament obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And this is been to their great dissatisfaction, such that we have now the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons, the nuclear ban treaty passed in 2017, um, which, you know, is completely supported by non-nuclear weapon states with no nuclear weapon states members. It's seeing these kinds of conflicts that we're seeing now and tensions between the U.S. and China and U.S. and Russia make it even less likely, I think, than they already were to join the nuclear ban treaty. Now, to be clear, I didn't think they were likely to join that treaty anyway, but this idea that you could delegitimize nuclear weapons when they become a much more sort of prominent, um, not tool of conflict necessarily, but maybe tool of brinksmanship um, and and sort of coercive diplomacy potentially could make this even harder. Um, The disarmament um, plans, uh, I don't want to say it that way, the trajectory of disarmament for the nuclear weapon states as they seek to modernize, as they seek to kind of build up their arsenals, seems like it's going in the opposite direction. So it seems a difficult time for disarmament, a really difficult time for arms control, um, at a time when we might think we need it the most. And this might be also in a way where we see Great powers relations being very different than the Cold War, where the Cuban Missile Crisis made two nuclear weapon states, the U.S. and Soviet Union, sit down and try to figure out how to manage the dangers of that nuclear relationship and try to figure out, actually put on the table arms control and figure out how to make it so it wouldn't spiral out of control. We don't see that kind of diplomatic initiative between the nuclear armed states right now. We don't have those kinds of agreements between the U.S. and China, um, and Russia and the U.S. are not in a place where they're really kind of drawing on those Cold War kind of nuclear ideas anymore. So it actually seems kind of less stable than it maybe was during the Cold War. It's less certain how Russia might behave. It's less certain if Russia thinks of nuclear weapons in a very different way than the United States, that it might be possible for Russia to use a small nuclear weapon on the battlefield, that it has these ideas about using nuclear weapons to escalate in order to sort of get concessions from the other side. So it seems like they are potentially becoming more acceptable to talk about. Um, than they had in the past, and that's a big change um, for international politics.
0: All right. So, what does this mean? Uh, obviously, looking towards the future, you know, you spoke about, you know, mm-hmm. the, the U.S.'s chief rivalry seems to be with China. Uh, what does this mean for Russian-Chinese relations, and as well as the West's ongoing rivalry with, with China?
1: So this is a really interesting question, I mm-hmm. think in part because China has historically really spoken up in the UN Security Council and, and in the international politics in general about the importance of respecting sovereignty. Um, and despite this, it seems very decided in solidifying its relationship with Russia during the war. So if this is really a war over Ukrainian sovereignty, this seems... Ah, I want to start this over. This is well. not well. Okay. So... This is a really interesting question because although China has really spoken up um, historically for the importance of sovereignty in the United Nations and the U.N. Security Council, it doesn't seem to be kind of following that line of argument um, in this particular conflict. Instead, it seems to be solidifying its relationship um, with Russia during this war. Um, it might be because it's tracking sort of how West, the West is responding to this conflict with its own eye on Taiwan and what it might want to do in the future in Taiwan. It might also be about more sort of broadly doubling down on a non-Western, non-US oriented global order. So it might just be about kind of solidifying this anti-Western
0: order. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so to speak.
1: Perhaps. Yes. Um, I'm not a China expert, um, but this is perhaps sending an interesting message in the year that President Xi Jinping is seeking to extend his term in office, despite the potential economic costs of doing so. Um, He's really coming in strong on this. Um, And I think China's strong support for Russia will certainly not help U.S.-Sino relations, um, and it seems likely to compound that ongoing rivalry rather than move it in more productive directions. Okay.
0: Uh, all right. Well, obviously, it's a very serious conflict with a lot of serious topics that I, f- I feel like you could. Yes. Te- I feel like you could teach a course on every single one of these things. I think things. so. Yeah. Um, well, and anyways, thank you for being with us today and thank discussing you. this topic. This has been the Just Law podcast at BC Law. I'm Tom Blakely here with Eddie Ward and Professor Jennifer Erickson of Boston College. Uh, until next time, that'll do it. Thanks for watching.